Welcome to Legends of Weed. My name is Joanne Sukumaran. Every episode, I interview a top wind player from the bassoon or over community. Find out more about them, about their musical knowledge and insights, and what makes them tick. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Legends of Reed. Today, I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking to Jeff Lyman. He's the professor of Boston at the University of Michigan and has established himself as one of the most premier performance teachers and historians of the Boston in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. Actually, my first encounter um, with uh, your bassoon playing was uh, when I listened to the video of you playing Nightfall uh, by, yes. yeah, by Adrian Albert. And then the, I really started to explore the University of Michigan's uh, YouTube uh, channel. Eh? Mm-hmm. So perhaps we can start by talking about your bassoon studio, no? I think. Uh, yeah. Sure. How do you maintain such an uh, exciting and diverse bassoon studio? Because I see you have more than 160 videos. Yes. Which is really impressive. <laughs> well, um, I, part, part of the videos there are mine, of course, but um, the great number of them are from my students and their recitals. And that's what I, I wanted to do with this uh, YouTube channel was um, the, the biggest questions I get from students every year are, can you tell me about your bassoon student? And one of the first things I do is to recommend that they go and look at the work that my students and I have done that we've put up on the YouTube channel because it, it, um, I'm proud that nearly all the videos are live, that there are only a few that have been created in the studio and are therefore edited. So um, you get a picture of what we do in all, it's an absolutely true picture. Uh, so whether you, uh, you enjoy them or you don't, that's up to you. And, and that's why I like it. It's that, um, it gives us an opportunity to, um, connect with audiences far beyond, uh, the actual, uh, university here in Ann Arbor. And so, um, as, as you and I connected via that video of the Adrian Albert piece, I first came to know that piece through uh, a performance by one of my students, uh, my former students, Christian Schillinger. She teaches now at the University of Ithaca, or Ithaca University, sorry. And um, uh, she studied with me in her doctoral degree at Arizona State. And it's wonderful for me to see my former students now creating their careers and connecting with composers the way I've always connected with composers. And that's one of the other things that I like about our YouTube channel is that it has a good balance between standard repertoire and uh, new music. And the more that I can encourage uh, both my students through their performances and their recitals and students who come, not just students, but anyone who comes to the studio and um, uh, investigates the the pieces that we put there, that will encourage more working uh, relationships composers, etc. So I hope that that YouTube channel both um, advertises for my work with the studio and attracts the kind of student that wants to be a part of that, but also um, to, to any students who are out there, you know, geographically far from us, we can still benefit and find those works on their own and uh, play them wherever they live. Hmm. Yeah, because I also um, discovered one of your students, and his name is uh, Yusuf. Yusuf, and, yeah. Garber, yes. Yeah, and he's really cool because he has this <laughs> really cool uh, bassoon groove music. Yes. I, Could you I tell us met, about him? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I first yeah. met Yusuf as a high school player out at the Idlewild Institute in California when I was teaching there one summer. And... Uh, He started at the university. He's finishing his second year of study here. And um, Yusuf is great because he's he's not only a classically trained bassoonist, but he plays jazz trombone and he has a dual degree in music performance and in performing arts technology. And uh, the videos you're talking about, the bassoon funk ones, he does all on his own. And as you've seen, he multi-tracks them. 
and everything that he puts in there, all the sounds of uh, whether it's bassoon or guitar or vocals or percussion, they are all bassoon sounds originally. So he has um, uh, manipulated those sounds with his expertise in performing arts technology, and he puts those videos together, and I love them. I, I just, uh, I'm, I don't do any of that myself. I don't play jazz. I don't improvise. I certainly don't play funk. But to have someone in the studio who does, again, brings, brings more attention to the openness that I'm trying to foster in the studio. And, um, uh, you know, just, just explore the bassoon in every possible way. This is one of the, the, the goals I've always had, that um, I've never simply been interested in the classic standard repertoire, but I also recognize that I have to be interested in that you 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 cannot be a bassoonist and not be um a part of the orchestral world so when people see me focusing a lot on new music they assume that i i either don't play just regular classical bassoon or or, or i'm not interested in it which is of course ridiculous because i it's it's exactly what drew me to the bassoon but um students like like yusuf for instance expose me to so many more things than I might be otherwise uh, exposed to. So I, I get so much vitality from my students uh, just because they, they show me things that either I've seen before, but they've brought a new perspective to, or things that I've never seen before. And um, I'm just looking forward to uh, students like Yusuf who are, are, are doing all of these interesting things with performance art, performing arts technology may be able to help us to have, you know, a better microphone system for the bassoon, a better, um, some kind of uh, electroacoustic interface that really works well with our instrument while other ones might not have. So the, his work, as fun as it may be to hear the bassoon function, as talented as, as, talented as he is in that, um, I look forward to students like Yusuf and like so many of more of my students who are into these mixed media um, projects to find the new ideas that we haven't even thought of yet. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's great because I love listening to Yusuf's work and I really look forward to what's coming in his future and in the future of all my students. Yeah, definitely, because I think that... Um we kind of new, need a new approach to raise the profile of the bassoon and the oboe, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, for example, in 2016, there was the Save the Bassoon campaign that was done in Holland. And mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the campaign, uh, I remember the, they, they were asking, so has the bassoon been saved? So, <laughs> so since 230 old people showed up in the... Finale, they say, okay, yeah, maybe the bassoon has been saved. But I think when you talk to a lot of promoters and, and agents, sometimes they're a bit reluctant to take on like a bassoon soloist or something, you know, right? Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and that, that's, that's something. It's, um, I find that, that there are two kinds of bassoonists. There are, there are the bassoonists who will look at that information and say, oh, well, um, as you say, agents and promoters won't... Uh, won't support us. And then there are the other bassoonists like Yusuf. I have another student, Maddie Wildman, who is creating her own chamber music groups and being very successful. Um, my former student, Ryan Reynolds, part of the Acropolis Reed Quintet. His group is doing very well. There are many other Reed Quintets that have, have um, started at Michigan following up on the success of Acropolis. So I think that um, I, I'm on the side that um, if promoters are, are reluctant to program the bassoon, what we have to do as bassoonists is give them other, other options, you know, show mm -hmm. them that, that um, uh, they could be on the front line of showing new, new venues, new um, ideas, new repertoire. So I, I think that, that, uh, you can take either side, you know, the, the, the good or the bad approach to it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I never have any problem finding music to play and uh, finding audiences to listen. So I think um, we, we can do a lot to change the minds of promoters. And 
And I understand if they if they only uh, if they only know the Mozart concerto or some Vivaldi concertos, that's all they're going to think about. We have to show them the other things that they can uh, they can promote and uh, how exciting they they might find us afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it it falls mainly on us, right? Yeah. Um, so you seem to champion uh, female composers, um, <laughs> and you have a very very wide range of programming choices, right? Uh huh. Um, because I heard that you, when you were um, young, you bought a, a ton of scores. You have a huge score library. Yeah. Yeah, and then the, you started uh, doing your own programming, right? Yourself. Right? Yes. Which, yeah. So, because yeah. um, I personally also enjoy doing that. So, <laughs> tons of uh, scores and ideas. So, I'm always looking out for new combinations like bassoon and harp. Bassoon yeah. and percussion. Um, do you have any tips, um, like which composers I should uh, um, look up for? Well, um, a, a good start for um, both bassoon and harp and bassoon and percussion, since you just mentioned that, oh. um, would be the French composer Alexander Uznov. He um, uh, he's composer and bassoonist, of course, and he has has also been um, very involved with new music. Back in the uh, 80s and 90s, he had a, um, a major project with Edition Salabert in Paris. And um, he commissioned a number of composers to write new works for him, uh, some of which have become classic, like the Je des Cinq Allemands by, by uh, Tontatiet, which you, you see very often in... Um, competitions, and then the monodrum by uh, Yoshihisa Taira, Japanese composer. Um, those are both, um, they, they were both used as morceaux de concours at the Paris Conservatoire, and um, now they, they very often show up on international competitions. Um, but he himself has composed multiple works for um, uh, bassoon and percussion, bassoon and harp, on, on our YouTube channel, I have both um, a, bas- a work of his for bassoon and vibraphone uh, called Cependant la Lune se Lève, and then also uh, for bassoon and multi-percussion uh, called Nairobi la Nuit. And mm. uh, he's written works for bassoon and harp, I know. But um, he, I, I often use Alexander as, a, um, as an example of the kind of bassoonist I hope to... Um, encourage in my own studio and in my own uh, career. Uh, that person who um, uh, is uh, very interested in the history and the tradition of the bassoon, but is also um, active today with current music and you know, setting a foundation for uh, the continuation of the bassoon in the future. I, I think Alexander is one of the, the best examples I can I can put forward about mm-hmm. to answer that question. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to move on to uh, practicing and uh, motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, has there been a very unique place you have ever performed or practiced in? Or what's, the, <laughs> what's the weirdest place? The weirdest place that I've ever played? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it, it's funny. There, there are two places, both of whom, uh, both of which involve um, two artist friends of mine from Savannah. Some of my 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 first job after uh, college was in the Savannah Symphony in in Southeast United States, and there I met uh, two artists, uh, Karen McVeigh and Martha Ensman, and the fr- and they uh, heard about. Uh, I, I had a conversation with them once about um, the Stockhausen piece in Freundschaft, which, um, as bassoonists know, <laughs> we're supposed to play in a teddy bear suit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, all, I, all I had to say was this piece existed, and they made me a teddy bear suit. And so um, the first time I got to play that piece in the suit is probably the, the weirdest place where I played it, which was at a... Um, um, a side art event at the Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina. They had um, a separate event called Piccolo Spoleto, 
And for Piccolo Spoleto, there were many um, uh, sort of art art exhibitions around town. Some of them were performances, some of them were um, sculpture, et cetera. So the strangest place I've ever played is outside uh, a lake in Charleston. I was playing Stockhausen in a teddy bear suit and around me on the ground were um, sculptures made out of old uh, tires from, from trucks. The, the outer uh, tread called retread, which uh, sometimes falls off of these trucks and is found on the highway. An artist that I knew made um, crocodiles and other animals out of these tire parts. So here I am dressed as a teddy bear playing Stockhausen next to a lake with crocodiles. Crocodiles. So, oh. yes. It was outdoors. Yeah. Outdoors, yes. And oh. those same artists, about um, 10, 15 years later, they had an exhibition of their costumes in front of the Pompidou Center in Paris. And they, mm. uh, they invited me to come and join them. And I was in a different costume sort of as a, a parade leader. So they, they had, uh, in the large square outside of the Pompidou Center, they had a number of students from the Savannah College of Art and Design dressed in their costumes. And I was there with my bassoon playing little French folk tunes and melodies and, and melodies by Satie and Poulenc and Stravinsky. And so I led a, progression, a, a parade of their costumes around the Pompidou Center in Paris. So <laughs> those two would probably be the strangest uh, opportunities I've had. Wow, okay, that's uh, really, <laughs> really unique. <laughs> the weirdest place I ever practiced was in a cemetery, but uh, there was- Cemetery? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a Sunday and I was staying with a friend in Munich. So in Europe, you know, Sunday is quite sacred, right? So, yes. so she said, yeah, maybe you could practice in the cemetery. Well, I guess that's a quiet audience. Yeah. <laughs> and not to disturb the neighbors. But I, I thought it was quite peaceful. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, what has been the most important career advice you have ever received from uh, mentors or teachers? That's something that sticks with you. Um, it, I, I go back to some of the first freelance jobs I ever had when I was a student in Philadelphia. Um, both um, my, my teacher, Bernard Garfield, and um, his DMA, his doctoral student at the time was a student named Kathy White, who is now married, Kathy Vigilante. And Kathy used to take me uh, freelancing with her. And the, the best advice and the advice that I follow to this day and that I give my own students is she said that you should be um, the most informed player in the orchestra at the time you're going. So even if you're playing second bassoon, if you are being hired and paid to play music for someone, they don't want to be teaching you the work as you sit down for the first rehearsal. So come in prepared, of course, know your part, but know how your part fits in with the other bassoon, know how it fits into the woodwinds, into the orchestra, et cetera. So that any time spent at rehearsal is not, not fixing something on your part, but rather just making everything better. So best advice for me was come prepared, be the best, the most prepared person that you can be. And um, if everyone takes that attitude, your rehearsals will be more productive and the music making will be that much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like great advice because uh, yeah, you have a job to do, no? When you test. Right, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, um, coming to some um, maybe a slightly more challenging questions. The last time I had on my show uh, Professor Ola Christenda, and mm -hmm. we kind of touched on about some career, um, how you say, minefields, right? So, um, for example, should a musician or emerging um, professional ever accept a non-paying gig for exposure? What do you think? Um. I, I have, um, mm -hmm. the, one of the, well, I'll answer it this way. One mm -hmm. of the complaints that we always have as classical musicians or that classical musicians like to put forward is that audiences are hard to develop and that audiences get older 
and that young people don't want to come. Um, I don't believe that. Well, well, let me change that. I believe it because I've seen it, but I've also seen way, solutions to fix that. And sometimes it means playing for people for free, as you say, in order to interest them into coming to your concerts when there are tickets to be sold or things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, since I work a lot with college students, um, when you say they're disappointed, if they don't have a large audience for one of the chamber music concerts, et cetera, um, I'll say, well, if I was there, I look around at the audience and I see some patrons who come all the time. I also see a few students who might be friends of other students who are on stage. And one of the first questions I ask is, did you invite your friends to the concert? Because most of the concerts at the university are for free. And it's a different thing. I know that, I know that you're asking, once you're a professional, should you play for mm. free? But um, uh, sometimes the word free is, is different. <laughs> it's, it's um, I would say sometimes that playing for free is an investment on our part that you might be making the contacts with potential audience members who will come and engage in that professional exchange, which is all that buying a ticket is, is that you're, you're presenting your product, you're selling it. If they buy a ticket, they're, uh, they're supporting it. But um, I, I'm not sure what kind of, of free performances I'll ask you, would hmm. you not play? Hmm. That's a good one. Pro probably for the uh, orchestra, I think, here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, the, well, yeah, it, the larger the number of people, the more problematic um, it might become. Because, of course, we, we do this as a living. That, that's hmm. one of the things that, that we we have to recognize and we have to make other people recognize that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've never asked a plumber to come to my house to fix something and just do it for free. That yeah, you, yeah. You, you don't go to a doctor and get a free visit. So why should my profession be expected to give things for free? Mm -hmm. But um, there are times when other professions, you know, maybe a, a, a restaurant will participate in a, um, uh, you know, a, a taste of Ann Arbor, for instance, or a taste of New York City, where restaurants try to attract people by bringing um, bringing people out, say, to a, a, an open air market and give some some taste there. That that kind of thing, I fully support, but um, I don't like to, as a professional. Uh, get people used to paying nothing, okay? Mm -hmm. Because if they pay nothing, they assume it's, it's worth nothing. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, if we as professionals expect people to treat us professionally, we have to know when um, we're giving a sample and when we're giving away things that should have been paid for. Yeah, yeah. Because I have done, uh, for example, um, I played for free for charity for yes. special project to raise awareness to, um, for, mm -hmm. for the community or like a pop-up concert, you know, like because yes. to build uh, yeah, to build a name for yourself also. But I think for orchestra, I don't know. I'm a bit iffy about it because especially when they sell tickets, then yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And the next question is, for example, if you have yours um, about motivation, how can one mm -hmm. stay motivated when you, you face like naysayers and deflectors, detractors? I mean. Well, um, we, we started this conversation uh, yeah. about the YouTube channel. And you know that, that the internet can be a wonderful place and it can be a horrible place. Um, the, the thing that you, we, we have to remember when we're... Um, whether it's whether we're in the public on the internet or when we're in the public in a in a concert hall, is that um, we are musicians presenting not only a product like I said before, where where our 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 product just happens to be 
our musical art, um, audiences are filled with sometimes tens of people, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. You're not going to please everyone. However, um, in a, a one-on-one -on -one relationship at a concert, people are much more aware of the person that you are and the person that they are. And um, we lose that relationship on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people are unfortunately, I think, less afraid to express not only poor opinions, but mean and sometimes hurtful and disgusting opinions on the mm -hmm. internet because they're hiding behind devices. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, rarely do people comment in these negative ways when they are even face to face like we are now. But mm -hmm. if you are, if you're watching a video and you can press a dislike button or you can uh, have some phony avatar on your identifying um, photograph that hides your identity even further, and you're that much of a coward to go to that extent so that you can be a troll or uh, that you can uh, just try to destroy someone's reputation being completely anonymous, then we, we can only say who cares. Now, <laughs> that's, that's, that's easy for me to say in a, in a forum like this, and it's much harder when you are the person receiving those terrible remarks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I try, you know, because I, with all of the videos on our channel, I, I take advantage of YouTube's being able that we can, um, I can approve or deny any of the comments that go up. Now, I've put up comments that have not been positive. The dislikes and the likes are all visible. The only time I don't allow a comment is when someone is making something that is purely hurtful. Um, and if it's about me, I don't care. I might put it up. But if it's about one of my students' videos up there, I do not want to support that coward who has not identified themselves and is simply trying to uh, get away with something. So uh, it's an extremely difficult balance to make when um, you are presenting yourself honestly via your music. And then there are people who may or may not present themselves honestly, um, who hide behind a device, as I said before. Um, but we, you know, we face that as performers. Every time we go on stage, we are opening ourselves up to both applause and to boos. People mm -hmm. are a lot, a lot more afraid to boo when they are visibly doing that mm -hmm. <laughs> as oh, they, yeah. compared with when you can just click a few keys and say something terrible. Yeah. So, but that's, that's the world we're in now where, um, the, the good thing is that you and I can make connections like this half a world away, literally half a world away. But the bad thing is, is that there could be someone else right here in, here in Ann Arbor making terrible comments about you or in Singapore making them about me. And <laughs> I it's, doubt it's, well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that it's that world. And so um, if any of us are hoping to change that world and be a better part of it, we set the example. And I know I sound like, <laughs> I sound like someone's grandpa right now, but um, I, I don't have a great answer for that. We just, we performers are different in that we put our heart and soul out there via our music. And sometimes it will connect in a positive way. Sometimes it's going to be negative. We have to be prepared for both. Yeah, like you say, the internet is a double-edged sword, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. For example, last year I, I, I held a Kickstarter campaign. Uh -huh. Um yeah, to crowdfund the funds for my album. But mm -hmm. then I think that was also very public because you can't you can't be too shy when you want to raise right. money. Yes, yeah, but, yes. but but I think I I I face like you know like like you say the negative comments in the workplace, 
And then I was speaking to a mentor, and uh, and he's actually the from the record label that will publish my album. Uh huh. And he was just like, just ignore it. It's it's not worth yeah. your time, right? I think. That's well, true, right? yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's easy to say just ignore it, and I know yeah. that I I try yeah. this, but every morning when I'm sitting for breakfast, I open our YouTube channel and I check to see you know whose videos are doing well. And of course, I check on the likes and dislikes, and it's I, I feel like a little kid, and I'm in the playground at school <laughs> because if we get a dislike, I, I immediately say, "Well, where did that come from? And who said it? And and um, a, you know, why why would they do that? And then then sometimes another listener will see that there was a dislike and say, "Why did you dislike that?" So it's it, it, it's hard to manage sometimes, um, but I think your your friend is right to say ignore it, and then <laughs> I find I'm not ignoring it either. So it doesn't matter how how old you are, how young you are. Of course, our feelings are important to us because that that's why we're in this business. Uh, I mean, and it, I say business, and I I almost didn't want to say that, but because it's both an art and a business, and it's personal and it's um, uh, it's public. So. Um, I, I guess sometimes it would be a lot easier if you were, you know, in a more anonymous profession. But at the same time, the, the, the very fact of what we do reminds me, say, if I go to a bookstore, I don't want to be a jerk to the person who's the clerk there. I don't want to be I don't want to be the person sitting behind a device. You know, I uh, if, if anything is good about the Internet. The depersonalization of the internet often makes me more aware of the personalization of day-to-day interactions. So you, some of the best advice I can give about reacting to internet trolls is don't be that way to the next person that you meet. You know, if you go to a coffee shop, be nice to the person giving you your coffee. Tip them. You know, you know yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. it may be just a couple of dollars for a cup of coffee, but that's their job. And you want them, they provide you a service that you need every morning. Be good to them. Invite them to your concert. Uh, it's the, the Internet has shown us how we can make fantastic relationships around the world in ways we never dreamed of. But those relationships are still personal they're still important they're still vulnerable they're still fragile and um we have to treat each other online the way we would treat each other face to face yeah okay so um moving on um i have this quote by nina simone and she's once said an artist's job is to reflect the times do you agree with that Absolutely. And I'm so glad you, you quoted <laughs> Nina Simone. She's one yeah. of my favorite, favorite singers. I oh, love yeah? Nina Simone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I completely agree. And that's one of the things that um, we've, we've talked about the YouTube channel and how I, I like to um, foster composer interactions. But the thing that I have tried to do more than anything with my work in academia is... Um, if I if I talk to someone in the sciences here at Michigan, I am always amazed at how broadly based to be a successful scientist. Say that they're working in um, pharmaceutical research, they have to know the history of their discipline, the present state of their discipline, in order to affect the future state of their discipline. Um, I want to be that person to have a major grounding in and an understanding of the past musical past uh be aware of what is going on in the present and then hopefully impact someone for the future because as you said before you know we're talking about agents or about you know uh, saving the bassoon for the future uh i i i'm more worried about the fact that people think the bassoon won't be around in the future uh Every single year at audition time, 
some student would walk through my door and as I think I said on the double read dish, I'm amazed that they'll sit down and I think you were born to play this instrument. That's still today that, that, you know, no one, no one in elementary school <laughs> has bassoonists to look up to, you know, <laughs> but somehow by junior high or high school, someone will connect with our instrument either by uh, being inspired by hearing the instrument or maybe their orchestra director or band director said, I need a bassoon and you're, you're, you're playing well on the saxophone, why don't you try this? Um, I, I think that reflecting our times in, in terms of bassoonists is that broadly based approach that, as, as you may have seen on my Instagram, last night I played with two of my former students, I played Beethoven 9 and I was playing Contra. So I loved that, that first of all, uh, that two of my students were sounding so amazing and that uh, one of them actually played, we, the program was Shostakovich 9 and Beethoven 9. Mm. And to be able to hear two of my students sounding so beautiful sitting right next to me um, was fantastic for me. But then to play something on Contra that is as difficult as Beethoven 9 was a challenge for me. And so I liked, you know, and I've played Contra for most of my career as well. So it was, it was a great challenge for me to get that part back up, to be ready to play it. Um, but I, it goes back to what I said before, that bassoonists must be grounded in the orchestra. That's where we live. But we also live in the 21st century, and we want to have bassoonists living in the 22nd century, et cetera. And so um, yeah. Nina Simone... Nina Simone was right. And she, she did something that is much harder for us to do, which her music was so involved with um, uh, public discourse and with um, uh, racial issues and with feminist issues. And it's much harder when we are playing abstract notes. So um, one of the things that I've, I've always been interested in with working with composers and with impacting other students is when you have opportunities to play new music that is somehow inspired by current events or that um, is written in a way maybe with, with text involved, um, maybe just that the program notes would, will, will tell people this work was inspired by such and such event and maybe just might get them to think about that event. No, no one's going to, I believe, change the world politically by playing the bassoon. Mm -hmm. But we will be able to change the world, and we always have and continue to change the world via musical performances, being artistic, via artistic performances. So um, I completely agree with Nina. And as soon as this interview is done, I'm going to probably go and listen to more Nina Simone. <laughs> oh, that's nice to hear. Yes. So um, you have done several premieres, right, of works. Yes. Um, how, how do you approach a composer? Like, how does a commission work? I mean, how, Well, yeah. um, I, can, I can talk about one of the most uh, uh, visible, visible commissions I've been a part of recently, which was yes. um, Michael Gordon's Rushes. Uh, the work for seven bassoons. Um, and uh, Dana Jessen, uh, who spearheaded that uh, commission, she had the greatest... Uh, first, first of all, she engaged the composer, Michael Gordon, who was famous enough in America that I think put the commission at a new level. We realized that um, as a member of the Bang on a Can group of composers, um, he would have an international stature that we sometimes don't enjoy when we're comp uh, you know, commissioning composers for bassoon. So it was great that she got someone as well-known as Michael. And then she worked with Michael by bringing a lot of bassoon music to his attention. And so she would play for him. She would bring him scores, bring him recordings. I remember him telling us that before uh, he started composing. He met with a lot of bassoonists and would listen to um, their favorite works. 
And then ultimately when he composed for us, he wrote something that didn't sound like anything that had ever been written for bassoon. So to answer your question, that's what I like best is if I can provide some examples of how composers have used bassoon in the past, um, maybe answer questions about register, about articulation, about dynamics, but then leave them to be themselves and to create something completely unique. And that's what um, I hope your listeners have, have heard Rush's or will go out and listen to it. I, I am so proud to have been a part of that commission and that recording and with many, many performances since because um, to me, that represents exactly what I want for everyone in, in a commissioning experience, which is to work with someone every bit as talented as the people who are commissioning him and who brings back something so surprising and so unique and so wonderful that you just simply want to make sure that everyone uh, knows about it. Now, that's not always the way this works. There are some times when um, the, the piece that I've gotten has been not something I enjoyed. There's times it, it's been stuff that I've loved, sometimes in between. But the act of creating is the most important part for me, is that I, it's, it's like getting a present. You know, you, you, you take off the wrapping, you, 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 you open it up. Sometimes it's a great surprise. Sometimes you're wondering why mm. someone wants yeah. you. Yeah. But um, the, 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 the best part of commissioning and working with composers, I think, are the, the interactions, the questions and answers, where um, you get to learn about your, your instrument by trying to entice a composer to write something new for it. So, um, you know, the, the only time I don't like, the only interaction I don't like is if a composer will come and say, play me all of the extended techniques that you can possibly play. You know. Give me a, a bunch of multiphonics. And my answer now is, well, well, what sound do you want? Do you need a multiphonic? Tell me the context where you would need that sound. If you want a glissando, tell me why the glissando is important. Don't, I, I don't like to provide composers with toys that, that they mm -hmm. have to use. You know, mm -hmm. I, want, I want to be able to help in their expression. If that includes, some new techniques, some multiphonics, great. I'll be able to help you out. But um, I don't like to put, I don't like to hand them, as I said, a lot of new toys. Mm -hmm. I want, if I'm engaging with a composer, it's because I either heard their music and enjoyed it, or they came to me asking about the bassoon, but I'd rather their the sounds they present to us in the finished piece exist because their expressive needs are served by those sounds rather than give me everything, give me your toy box and I'll play with your toys. Mm -hmm. so that, that does not interest me. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the next question is a bit more personalized. Um, <laughs> if you could uh, sum up your life in a book title, what would it be? <laughs> Um, well, I, as, as I think, again, uh, this is my second podcast interview, so I may have yeah. said this a double read dish, but, um, like many, many musicians, I've worked a lot in, uh, food service, both as a waiter, uh, I was a pastry chef for a while. Um, and I think what's, what's the same between working in food and, and, um, working one-on-one -on -one as a waiter with people who are going to, you're serving them food. This is very much like the performer on stage providing their music. You are creating personal relationships and they involve money, either buying a ticket or paying for the, the, the meal. So essentially music and food service are two of the ultimate collaborative relationships. So maybe a book title for me would be, May I Help You? <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> uh, 
you know, it, it would work in food service. It would work in a rehearsal situation. Uh, so, and as professor also, no? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I guess that's, that's the book. Oh, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Would you like to tell us some of your upcoming projects or concerts? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, uh, we are just finishing um, a school term. And so uh, this week I have my juries with, with my students. And then right after that's finished, um, I'm back in the, in the recording studio for two more videos of new works, uh, one of which uh, is by Brandon Rumsey, who was a composition student here at Michigan a few years ago, who he himself was a bassoonist, another perfect lead into our, our conversation today. Mm -hmm. um, over the past couple of years, as is reflected on our YouTube channel, I have been studying with my students as many of the Paris Conservatory uh, contest pieces as we could, we could play. And we studied them in order to learn about how composers and bassoonists have, have interacted over these past 200 uh, or so years uh, at the conservatoire, but also how each of those pieces reflected the standards of bassoon playing of the day. You know, as we uh, go from the founding of the conservatoire up to today, the more so the concours have always either stretch the range or stretch the technique or or simply been a way for composers to use the bassoon in an expressive and sometimes a virtuoso way. So um, I engaged Brandon, I commissioned Brandon to write a piece if he were writing a, a more sort of concours. So um, mm. that piece he finished last year and so um, will be uh, Matt Thompson, who played with me at the IDRS conference in Spain in Granada last summer. He and I will re be recording Brandon's new piece in May. And then another composer, Michael Kosh, um, from um, the U.S., contacted me again via the Internet. <laughs> he saw yes. all of the, the videos that we were putting up of new music. And he said, I've got a piece that you might be interested in. And um, it's called Interphase, a free movement piece for bassoon and piano. So that's another work that we'll be uh, recording. And that's another important thing that I, I, I encourage bassoonists to do is that new music very often um, has a very short life. And if you're not there to see the premiere or if you don't happen to find a recording, um, those new works no matter how good they are, might not find an audience. So I enjoy people like um, uh, Michael Kosh and, and Interface. I enjoy finding a piece that has been around for a few years and that needs another performance or two. Um, I, I, our work is never done, in other words. <laughs> that um, new music to me, the, the word new can be brand new, it can be new to you, it can be new from 50 years ago. So um, that's next up on my, on my plate. And then um, learning a lot more new pieces over the summer. The, the one great, the greatest thing about having an academic job is I do get some time to fully re-engage my own creative uh, processes. So this summer, it will be uh, me practicing all those new pieces that I I've not learned yet and taking out other things and, and hopefully they'll be up on the YouTube channel very soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've come to the last question. Okay. Um, um, what do you like to do in your free time? Because I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, as, as anyone who's, who's seen my Instagram knows, I've got two great uh, yellow Labradors who keep me yeah. Out, yeah. out and about all the time. In fact, yeah. I was telling you as we got set up that uh, they wake me up at 5.30 in the morning every single day. And mm -hmm. we usually do a couple miles walking um, before breakfast. And so I do that. I still enjoy um, uh, cooking. There, there's, uh, uh, since, since that was a big part of my life, um, I really love, just, just love making I love making food for myself, of course, but I also love making it for other people. Maybe it's because of all that time that I, I worked as a dessert chef or as a waiter. Um, just off to the side here, I've got a bunch of uh, the, the cookbooks by um, Yotam Otolenghi. I've got 
plenty. Oh. We got Nopi. Um, wow. I've, I've already this afternoon, I plan to go to the bookstore and get a couple more of his. That um, that's He would be the equivalent, the food equivalent of a composer that I love. You know, I, if, you, if you love Shostakovich and you only know the fifth symphony, you've got 14 others that you can learn. Then you've got all the string quartets. Sometimes a, a chef will come along and I love one of their books so much that I start buying all of them. That's another summer project that I, I want to do is to, to cook as many uh, dishes by Otolenghi as I can. So uh, the dogs keep me busy. The food keeps me interested and the dogs also help me to work off the food. <laughs> so. Yeah. Have you seen this um, show on Netflix? I think it's called A Chef's Table or something. Yes. Like yes, I have. Yeah, I find it so oddly similar to being a musician somehow. Right? Of course. Yeah. Yes. Wait, they, the chefs have the same terrible hours that we do. Um, chefs and restaurant workers are, are often, we see people in celebration time. You know, people yeah, will come yeah. in for their birthdays, for their anniversaries. People will come to concerts because it's a special event for them. People come to concerts to be inspired. People don't go to concerts the way they go to their account or the way they go to, you know, something else that might be a, a necessary part of their lives, but less uh, fun, less inspiring. And so I know a lot of people uh, who are musicians who are also uh, really great chefs or who had, um, uh, you know, experience being actors or actresses. Uh, uh, we're a creative people and we see other people when they're having their, their time off. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, sometimes that's great. We both have a great time. Sometimes it goes back to your question about giving away things for free is that um, mm, yeah, they yeah. just think we do this for fun. It's fun yeah. for them, so it must be fun for you. Don't you just yeah. give it away? No. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, YouTube is free. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting um, perspectives. And uh, yeah, thank you for making this time on early on a Sunday morning to speak to me. Yeah. It's my pleasure, Joanne. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.